Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley. But first, your true crime headlines. In Allegheny, Pennsylvania, a man shot and killed his sister and then turned the weapon on himself. Last Wednesday, 59-year-old John Dufford and 62-year-old Karen Dufford were involved in a physical altercation in an Allegheny Township residence that they shared with their 80-year-old mother. According to police, the incident began with the brother and a bonfire. It is believed that he was under the influence for a good portion of the day, Chief Fisher said. Something happened that set him off between his sister and him related to that bonfire. At around 11.30 p.m., John assaulted Karen, and she called the police. John fled the scene, and officers searched for him in the woods behind the residence, but they could not locate him. The brother instead made his way to the Allegheny Township Police Station, picked up a phone, and asked to speak with an officer. Chief Fisher said that authorities are unsure if it was a sincere effort to speak to an officer or an attempt at a diversionary tactic. When officers made their way back, he was gone again. Then, at around 1.40 a.m., the mother called police, concerned about her son. As officers approached the house, they heard a sudden pop, and John collapsed in the front yard. He had turned the gun on himself. When officers entered the home, they found his sister, dead from multiple gunshot wounds. A deputy coroner pronounced both dead at the scene. Police say that both substance abuse and mental illness are believed to be factors. Karen Dufford's death was ruled a homicide, and John Dufford's death a suicide. The mother was unharmed. A Louisiana man convicted of killing a 22-year-old pregnant woman and her one-year-old child in a car crash has been sentenced to 50 years in prison. Dylan LeBlanc pleaded guilty in February to two counts of vehicular homicide in the August 2018 deaths of Abby Sinatere and her son, as well as feticide in the death of the fetus and four counts of vehicular negligent injury for wounding three other children in Sinatere's car, as well as a passenger in his own vehicle. According to prosecutors, there was alcohol in LeBlanc's system at the time of the crash, and he was driving at speeds of about 100 miles per hour when he lost control of his vehicle, crossed a median, and struck Sinatere's vehicle. He was sentenced on Tuesday to 15 years on each of the two vehicular homicide charges, five years for the feticide charge, and another 15 years on an additional charge of aggravated obstruction of a highway, to be served consecutively, the district attorney's office said. A South Carolina mother on trial for placing two of her newborns in trash bags and throwing them away about a year apart, told investigators that she blacked out from the pain of delivering the second child alone, waking up 15 minutes later and finding the boy's face blue. Alyssa Davolt, charged with two counts of homicide by child abuse, did not show up for her trial this week, but the case is moving forward with her lawyers putting on the defense. 
On Wednesday, prosecutors played a recording of Davalt's interview with police, who were called after Davalt showed up at the hospital in December of 2018 with an infection caused when she did not deliver the placenta following the birth of the baby boy. In the recording, Davalt can be heard telling investigators that she hid the pregnancy from both her longtime boyfriend and her mother. She said that she delivered the baby alone in her North Myrtle Beach home. And after passing out from the pain and discovering the unconscious baby, she put him in a trash bag and threw him away. Davalt also told investigators that this had happened before. In November of 2017, she said, she also hid a pregnancy, gave birth alone, this time to a girl, and threw her body away after the baby had her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. When she was questioned, Davalt first denied having a baby, but as investigators pressed her, she started crying. They asked her why she threw the babies away, and she cried saying, quote, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't, I was too scared. In his opening statement Wednesday, prosecutor Josh Halford said that this, quote, isn't a murder trial, adding that the prosecution does not have enough evidence to prove that the defendant intentionally killed her babies. Instead, Halford said prosecutors would prove that Davalt showed, quote, extreme indifference for human life because she sought no care from anyone for her newborns. Quote, she didn't drop that baby off to the fire station. She didn't put the baby girl up for adoption. She didn't ask her mother to take care of the baby girl. She simply threw the baby out with the trash. Public defender Sade Crawford told jurors that she doesn't think prosecutors can show that Davalt didn't care about her babies at all. Davalt faces up to life in prison if convicted. She was out on bond and has not been to court this week. An arrest warrant against Davalt has been issued. If she is found guilty, the judge will seal her sentence until she is found and brought to court. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Evelyn Hartley. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On Saturday, October 24, 1953, Vigo Rasmussen, a professor at La Crosse State College in Wisconsin, hired 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley, the daughter of a fellow professor, to babysit his 20-month-old daughter, Janice. Vigo, his wife, Madeline, and his seven-year-old daughter, Lena, were headed to the homecoming football game that night. Evelyn had never babysat for the Rasmussens before, and when she arrived to the house, she held her school books and some flowers. Evelyn, known to her friends as Evie, was active in the youth program at her local church and sang in the choir. Her pastor described her as quiet, dependable, and devoted. Evelyn placed the flowers on the kitchen counter. Mrs. Rasmussen told Evelyn to put the baby to sleep at 7, and at around 6.45 p.m., the Rasmussens left for the game. When we came home, Lena, now in her 70s, told the Lacrosse Tribune, lo and behold, our whole house was surrounded by police cars. My mom almost fainted. She jumped out of the car and shouted, 
Where's my baby? My baby! It's not the baby, they were told. It's Evelyn. That evening, Evelyn was supposed to telephone her parents at 8.30 p.m. to check in. But when Evelyn never called, her father Richard telephoned the Rasmussen house. No one answered. He called again. Still no answer. Concerned, Richard decided to drive to the Rasmussen house to check on things. When he arrived, he knocked on both doors and rang the doorbell. But no one answered. The doors were locked, the lights and the radio were on, and items including the living room furniture and Evelyn's books were scattered all over the house. When Richard walked around the house, he found an open window that led to the basement. The screen had been removed and was leaning outside against the wall. Positioned next to the open window, he found a short stepladder. Richard entered the house and frantically searched for his daughter. There was blood on the living room floor. Evelyn's shoes were in different rooms, one upstairs with her broken glasses and the other shoe downstairs in the basement. But no Evelyn. Every room in the house had been locked, except one in the basement that was located at the back of the house. Pry marks were found on other windows and footprints around the house. Blood was found both inside and in the yard, and bloody handprints about a hundred feet away in a garage and on a nearby house. The Rasmussen's child was asleep and unharmed. Frank Linder, the neighbor who lived across the street, called the police. Within minutes, police officers arrived. Based on the blood evidence found in the grass, police believed that Evelyn's abductor dragged her through the yard, but dropped her on the ground before carrying her further. Police deployed dogs to pick up her scent trail, which ended at Cooley Drive two blocks away. Police theorized that Evelyn was taken at approximately 7.15 p.m., just after she would have put the little girl down to sleep. Her assailant then attacked her, dragged her out of the house through the basement, and most likely put Evelyn into a vehicle and drove away. One neighbor told investigators that they had noticed a car repeatedly driving around the neighborhood. Another witness who lived nearby claimed that they had heard screams an hour earlier, but assumed that it was just children playing. Two days later, a local resident, Ed Hoffer, told police that while he was driving, he was almost hit by a green Buick as it was speeding away in a westerly direction. Inside the Buick, he said, 
he saw one man driving, while a second man sat in the back seat with a girl. Cars were stopped and searched. Police printed thousands of stickers, which read, My car is okay, to mark the vehicles which they had already inspected. Gas station attendants were asked to check cars for blood. Helicopters conducted aerial searches of the woods, and thousands of members of the community, police, students, the National Guard, and Boy Scouts, searched on foot. Authorities even dug up fresh graves to make sure that Evelyn's remains were not hidden with a recent burial. Several days later, a pair of underwear and a bra were found two miles away near an underpass on Highway 14. They were stained with blood. Along the same road, four miles away, a blood-stained pair of men's trousers were found. A pair of size 10 or 11 blood-stained tennis shoes were also found in the Coon Valley area southeast of La Crosse. The soles appeared to match the footprints found near the Rasmussen house. The shoes had a distinctive circular wear pattern on the soles, suggesting that the owner frequently operated a Whizzer motorbike. Near the shoes was a well-worn blood-stained blue denim jacket with metallic buttons. The jacket seemed too small to be worn by the owner of the shoes, and if it connected to Evelyn's disappearance, this seemed to back up the theory that she was taken by two men. DNA testing was not yet available in the 1950s, but blood type testing was. The blood on the articles of clothing was type A, the same as Evelyn's. Months passed and there was still no sign of Evelyn Hartley. In May of 1954, police conducted mass lie detector testing on La Crosse Area High School boys, as well as on Evelyn's father and Vigo Rasmussen, who were both cleared of any involvement. They planned to polygraph test 1,750 students and faculty but the testing caused controversy, and it was halted after around 300 were tested. Richard and Ethel Hartley made several public pleas to their daughter's abductor for her safe return. A young man called them, offering information about Evelyn in exchange for a cash reward. The police set up a trap and arrested him. He was 20-year-old Jack Dufferin. He knew nothing about Evelyn's disappearance and was just after the money. A year after Evelyn's abduction, Sheriff Robert Scullin estimated that his department had questioned nearly 1,200 people and were no closer to learning what happened to Evelyn. The case was going cold. The jacket and shoes were put on display throughout the region with a plea for information from anyone who might recognize them. 
calls, and potential leads flooded the police station. But none were credible. Many investigators came to believe that the shoes and the jacket were completely unconnected to the disappearance. Vigo Rasmussen put the house, which he had built just a few years earlier, up for sale and moved his family to a home on South 21st Street, where he installed bars on every window of the house. Three years later, in November of 1957, when serial killer Ed Gein was arrested, police considered him a suspect in Evelyn's disappearance. Ed Gein was visiting a relative just a few blocks away from the Rasmussen house at the time of Evelyn's abduction. Gein denied involvement in her disappearance, passed two polygraph tests, and police found no trace of Evelyn's remains during a search of Gein's property. He was cleared of any connection with the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley. But despite this, many still consider Gein a suspect. Over the years, numerous individuals came forward and confessed to the crime. All of these confessions were investigated, and all were dismissed as false. Evelyn Hartley's remains were never found, and her disappearance remains unsolved. I think the case would be really hard to solve at this time, Lena said. I feel like anyone who was involved in anything is long past. It would have provided more closure if the person had been found, even to have a body to bury. For someone to be prosecuted would have helped our families move on. Today, the Evelyn Hartley case is still considered a missing persons case, with foul play suspected. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.